developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Hi friends, this is Dr. Lynn and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today visiting us with us is my friend and colleague, Dr. Melissa Durchi. Melissa is truly an amazing person and you'll quickly see her power, success and creativity. Today we're going to talk about obtaining supports in the school system. But first let's find out a little bit about Melissa's uh, impressive and adventurous life here. Dr. Melissa Dale Durchi is a mother, wife, teacher, and doctor of education. Her journey to her doctoral degree began when one of her twins, Abigail, was diagnosed with dyslexia before first grade. Melissa soon realized she wanted to create pathways for other families navigating the educational system. Melissa's got 20 years of educational experience. And part of her journey includes pursuing her dream of obtaining a doctoral degree. She chose to focus on educational equity and its implications in education. Her experience in her doctoral program included focused work in giftedness, disabilities, twice exceptional, and racial inequities. She now owns and is the director of Navigating Education. So, Melissa, Thank you, and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Dr. Lynn. It's great to have you. So let's kind of jump in, and you mentioned about educational equity. That's a term that's, uh, you know, we hear equity being used a lot in conversations, but educational equity is interesting. Can you uh, explain some of, I guess, some of the inequities that are happening which is why you're in your field to try to make sure um, everybody has a chance of receiving appropriate schooling. Sure. <clears throat> so I like to I like to liken um, inequity and inequalities to needing glasses. So let's say that when I so when I was in fourth grade, I went to the eye doctor and I needed to put on some glasses to be able to see the board in the classroom, right? And I. I wore glasses. Not everyone in my class needed to wear glasses, but I did. And so if we're talking um, equality, it's giving every single person exactly the same thing. And so everybody in my class would need to wear glasses. That would be equality. Um, Equity is giving each child what they need to be able to be successful. So for example, I needed glasses when I, well, I've needed them my whole life, but beginning in fourth grade, I needed glasses to be able to access the board, but other students didn't need that. So they didn't um, need glasses. So 
inequities, things that are happening. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things. Um, one of my specialties is twice exceptionality. And so inequities that are happening there is either, so twice exceptionality means that a student is identified with both giftedness and with a possible disability. And many times what happens with our twice exceptional students, because they have a lot of layers to them, they are either identified for giftedness or they're identified with a disability. And sometimes um, school systems, very well intentioned, but they see um, one of them. And then a lot of times there's this mindset that if you have a disability, there's no way that you could be gifted as well or gifted cognitively because you're not performing in the classroom. So that would be an inequity is um, making sure that our students with disabilities have access if they have a cognitive um, giftedness, if they have an area of expertise, um, to make sure that they have access to gifted programs. Um, another one is um, in racial inequalities. So racial inequalities where students, again, don't have access or they're over-identified for disabilities. Students of color are over-identified with um, disabilities and under-identified in gifted education. And so we're working, there's a lot of research going on about um, giving equitable access to giftedness and working to um, working through the over-identification of students with color in, the, in special education. That's so interesting. And if I could back you up a little bit, especially when yeah. you were starting about uh, discussing twice exceptional kiddos, um, and you mentioned that so many parents and teachers are confused or question, wait a minute, how can he be gifted if he can't read? And it um, don't understand that. So if you'll explain a little bit more about twice exceptional of, you know, signs and symptoms and then um, how the school handles those kids. Because in my experience, that's really a problem. They often don't qualify for a program like they may be gifted, but they don't qualify for giftedness because of their disability and they don't fit in the disability classroom very, very well. Right. Yeah, so give us a little more insight on twice exceptional kiddos, because that's the population you and I have shared a number of patients yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you um, an experience. So from an experiential as a mother, and then also um, the other side, you know, that clinical side of things. So as a mom, um, you, you know, in the introduction, it mentioned my daughter. Uh, she is very, very verbal and is able to talk your ear off once she gets to know you and feel comfortable with you. She can talk tons of different topics and ask very deep questions. And so in reading groups when she was really young and even now, she'll ask a lot of questions as long as things are read to her and participate really, really well in conversations. But the moment she needs to go work on her own and um, be able to access that same information, but on her own through reading it and through um, attention to detail, it's really, really difficult for her. So early on, I realized um, that her abilities, both her gifted verbal ability and her struggle with dyslexia um, were, were going to be masked because I would hear a lot that 
see was typical, that things that they were seeing were typical or average in the classroom and much like other kids in the classroom, and she was participating and things like that. So she was doing what was, is referred to as masking, and it, it just means that your giftedness or your disability aren't necessarily seen because you're able to compensate during the school day. She would come home and fall apart and homework Oh my goodness, filling out papers. And I remember recording her just to give people an idea of how long it took her to write what should have taken minutes, took well over 10 minutes, 15 minutes, we were into it, negotiating back and forth. And you can do this <laughs> and being her, her cheerleader. And so that's the experiential side is it's exhausting and confusing even for parents of students with twice exceptional learners. And then in the classroom, it is confusing because, you know, they, they many times will mask. And so you'll have a student that is really participating, but then you send them off on their own. And it's like, there's a different kid in the classroom. And you're like, I don't understand. They understood everything while I was teaching them. But now they're off talking to a friend or they're up out of their desk. What is, what is happening? And so uh, on the more clinical side of things, um, a twice exceptional learner is going to have many times a cognitive profile that's really high and uh, falling, you know, in the 90th to 95th percentile. And it can be in any of the areas. So it can be a verbal, it can be a visual spatial ability where they are just the most amazing builders. And they might be the one at home take, wanting to take apart the toaster to figure out how it works. <laughs> and yet in the classroom, um, they're the one up out of their seat. They're the one not finishing their work. They're the one sometimes not turning in their work. And so it can be really confusing because it, it, sometimes what we can gravitate to is, well, if they could just sit down and focus more, if they would apply themselves more, then they would be successful. Sometimes what we're missing there, though, is that there's something blocking them. I still have not met a child that intentionally wants to um, make the teacher upset or not get a good grade or things like that. And so there's got to be something that is blocking them from being able to access their best learning. And when we start to pull apart those layers, all of a sudden we're seeing, oh my goodness, they are such like an engineer and they are going to be maybe the way that we're approaching them to demonstrate their knowledge is, you know, having them write an essay Although essays are wonderful and have their place, every single time needing to write an essay about something may not be appropriate for all children. And I would argue may, probably not all the time. Right. And instead, this child needs to build and create and um, get them involved in a 3D printing, um, get them involved in something that really speaks to them, that visual spatial piece that is really intriguing to them, and apply it to um, the learning that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for that explanation, because again, um, you know, I kind of have a, a warped perspective of what a gifted kid appears at because of the kinds of referrals I get from you and other psychologists. Yeah. You know, my, my opinion of gifted kid is a kid that can't write very well. And, right. and when I tell psychologists that, they go, well, that's not true. Well, those are the kids you send me <laughs> where there may be a differential between, again, the story they have in the head and their ability 
to formulate and get it out, you know, on paper and pencil kind of thing. Um, yeah. And so, and for that you know, child, it may be it may be that they need to learn storytelling techniques because they right. might be very great verbally and learn how to tell a story and watch YouTube videos on famous storytellers and things like that so that they can um, work on their verbal skills in front of people. And anyway, but there's so many options on being able to express their ideas. Um, I'd love to give you one example. Um, kudos to my, so my daughter, the, my daughter that has dyslexia, she's actually on a modified schedule. So she has five, she's in middle school and she has five classes at school in person and then she takes two classes online and I have been so impressed so kudos to the online teachers the in-person teachers they have been incredibly helpful for my daughter um we were nervous going in because it's the first time we've done a modified type of schedule but the um the social studies teacher assigned them some things uh about different they happen to be studying China right now and they gave lots of opportunities, including writing, but lots of opportunities to demonstrate knowledge and an area of interest with Chinese culture and immersing them in those types of things. And so my daughter decided to to create a 3D um, replication of one of the um, dynasty temples. And it, I saw her about a couple hours later after working on it, and I was like, oh my goodness, what? I'm like, I don't even how did you even do this? Did you copy it from somewhere? She's like, no, mom, I just, you know, just built it. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that's incredible. I would not be able to do something like that. And, but it's in her 3D program that if she needed to, she could 3D print it. And what, a, and then she had to do a little reflection to explain why she chose different things and what she used as to represent it. But she was so engaged in that. And it's something that she'll remember. And I have just been so impressed by the teachers being giving the kids you know five different options that speaks to you i need you to demonstrate your learning but here are lots of different ways to do that you choose what works best for you and i'm like oh my goodness if we could adopt that type of um, perspective it would change things i think in education that's huge and what a great story melissa thank you for sharing that and demonstrate your learning is different than do a paper or do a research right. paper. And it's, uh, you know, you brought up, you were so shocked on and how it looked and what she did. And that's what I see so often in the patients that we share and many of my patients in that the way the kid thinks process and learns is totally different than often the parent that's working with them. You know, <laughs> It's not always the case, yeah. but often the kiddo is very spatial, creative, and can do those things. And the parent goes, how did you do that? But on the other hand, the kiddo is looking at the parent going, how do you organize that? And why would you even do it that way? And that that lack of understanding of different ways of processing is where a lot of their frustration, behavioral, and you know problems come in and trying to fight that this is the only way to do it. Yeah, I love that you bring that up because... Um, just because we think differently or process differently isn't a good or bad. And so many times there's that good or bad associated with a different way of processing things. And if a, if a student in a classroom sometimes doesn't process the same way as a teacher, it may be easy to jump to, well, if you could just do it this way, 
um, then you would be a great student. And I don't think teachers do that on purpose, but I think it's easy to slip into. And another example is um, my husband is a very visual spatial thinker, and I'm a very sequential, <laughs> don't get me off tap. Like I have to follow from A to Z. If I don't, then I have to go back and I have to keep going. And something that he and I have learned in our marriage is that just because um, he thinks differently doesn't mean that it's better or worse. It just means that it's different. He approaches problem solving differently than I do. And so there have been things that we've been able to, um, for instance, I am horrible in an emergency, meaning I freeze. And my husband, because of the way he processes, is like, okay, we could do this option or we could do this option. I'm like, okay, you just tell me what we need to do and I'll do it. On the other hand, getting things turned in or a checklist, man, I'm all over that. And right. so we rely on each other, not because um, one is better than the other, but because um, it's just a different way. So it's not better or worse. It's just different. And that's one of the things that I like to talk a lot with twice exceptional students about um, is that we think differently and that's okay. That's okay to think differently. And that even uh, I use the analogy of an Olympic, uh, Olympic athlete, even an Olympic athlete needs a coach to hone in on the skills. And so sometimes we're going to need coaches throughout our life. And that can be a counselor, that can be a teacher, that can be a tutor. All of those different things can help us do better as a coach. Yeah, that's that's great, Melissa. And, you know, you're sharing your story about you and your husband and your different way of processing is just so classic of the patients I see when we do evaluations of kids that have, you know, learning vision and learning problems. And so often, like I said, um, the parent working closest with the kid often has the opposite learning style. And, you know, in my my 40 plus years of being in practice, I see great businesses are made up of people with all different learning styles. And, yep. you know, your your visionary person may be special and then your your uh, main uh, person who follows through is very sequential and it's not right or wrong, but it's what it takes to really do an excellent job. It takes all those skills and one person usually doesn't have all those skills. And the same thing happens in families, but too often, um, you know, people don't recognize like what you had mentioned is uh, it's a different in learning style or presentation style. And they don't see that as a strength. It's usually right and wrong. And then that seems to be the core of where a lot of, you know, emotional uh, disputes and, and stress comes from. Um, so I think that's a really important fact, both for the um, parents to understand and especially for the schools, because often many of these twice exceptional kiddos are in classrooms that have a very um, sequential, organized teacher, which is great, but it's not the kiddo's learning style. And and right. I'm sh sure you see a lot of behavioral and you know consequences from just it's not the way I do it kind of thing. Yeah. And when we look at what is emphasized in school, so turning in paperwork, um, getting a good grade, but on like a multiple choice or writing something out, what we emphasize in school may be in direct opposition to how the child processes. And so um, just being flexible in those things, giving them access, I think is 
one of the keys to helping them realize their own potential because they they think that something many times a lot of kids that I that I talk with work with um, have this internal monologue of something's wrong with me when it's not actually something necessarily wrong it's just they process a different way and that's okay and they need to have some coping strategies just like if I'm teaching a child to read sometimes I also need to teach a child um, to understand what their learning profile is on how they learn best and how they can uh, navigate through, okay, sequential things are really difficult for me. How do I make a system that works for me? Do I need to color code things? Do I need to have a checklist? Do I need to have um, my watch give me a reminder? Things like that, accommodations to help with that sequential piece so that they can be, um, you know, express their ideas through creativity and things like that and embrace all of that. And also, you know, I have to turn things in. So I, I need to have reminders for myself on turning things in. Yeah. Those are all great accommodations that, again, it's not necessarily remediation, but it's so helpful and effective. Um, it can really change a, a student's life, you know, in the parents' interaction with them, understanding you know, where their strengths are, tapping into those strengths. A lot of times it's just the understanding of it that helps the kids' self-esteem and frustration. Uh, We're going to get back to this discussion. We're going to take a break here in just a a few seconds here. And when we get back, we'll talk about support and how parents can really help their kids uh, find what's going on with them and then what they can do about that to help that child really be successful at school. So uh, we'll take a break in just a few seconds here. Dr. Lynn will be right back after this. Discover the power of the seeing brain, the creator of your true vision. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's number one bestseller book, Expand Your Vision, helps you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Remove roadblocks and visualize your new lens to see and experience your world. Get Expand Your Vision on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Vision Beyond Sight will help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Join Dr. Lynn each week for a new exciting episode, Vision Beyond Sight.
Can your child organize, really organize? Parents and teachers will have practical step-by-step strategies and templates to help get their children organized with Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's Organize It Workbook. Increased organizational skills create success and confidence in school, sports, and life. Get Organize It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Here's Dr. Lynn. Hi, everyone. Uh, we'll continue our great discussion with Dr. Melissa Durchie, who's really helping uh, kids and families obtain educational equity. We've been talking about the twice exceptional kiddos. Um, she's mentioned uh, her daughter who has dyslexia. And, and Melissa, I really wanted you to explain dyslexia a little more. I mean, that's a term people are very confused. It used to be the schools never use the term. Now I see it sometimes. That doesn't necessarily get you help. What do you do about it? So kind of navigate a little bit this dyslexia term and um, how parents can, you know, learn more about that. I think that there's a lot of myths around what is and is not dyslexia. Um, For example, a common one is that all dyslexics flip letters. Um, not necessarily. And so I want to go into two different processes that are involved in dyslexia. So there's the decoding, taking it off of a page and processing it, and then the encoding, taking it from you back out to the world. So the decoding and encoding um, are what make up the bulk of dyslexia. And some children will struggle to, to decode and get it off. That's many times what we see traditionally for a dyslexic is they struggle to decode the words or their fluency is a little bit impacted or um, they're just not being able to uh, subitize or uh, generalize different rules. The encoding is less common, well, we meaning it can be just as common, but we uh, don't see it as much, meaning we don't recognize it as much in the school system. The encoding back out to the world is the writing and the spelling and things like that. So a child can have okay decoding, but then encoding back out to the world can be a struggle. So things to look for is, are obviously if your child is struggling with uh, de- decoding strategies or early on, like a preschooler um, having a hard time with sounds, taking a word like um, sad and changing it to rad or tad, things like that, changing one sound on it, uh, that's that phonological processing. So that's going to be the early uh, signs of things. It doesn't mean that they have dyslexia. It just means that if they're lagging behind in those types of skills, then they might need some intervention. In schools, they're going to talk about tier one, tier two, tier three supports and Tier one is going to be your general classroom. Tier two is going to be a child might show that they're struggling with some things and need some intervention support to catch up on those skills. And then if they are still lagging after that, that's when we start looking at special education support, 504 support. That's going to be more of that tier three. So that's what schools are going to be talking about is this tier one, tier two, tier three. Um, But other things with dyslexia, So there's the decoding and encoding, but there are a lot of myths around 
um, the flipping letters. Uh, they see things differently. They actually don't see things. It's how they process the information once they um, take it into themselves and how they process through and then back out to the world. So it's a processing concern. And many times uh, dyslexics uh, can be very, very one other thing that's a big myth is that it has to do with their intelligence. It has nothing to do with their intelligence. Many dyslexics are highly capable and they just process the world differently. They process the world many times through um, an appreciation for nature, appreciation for beauty and art and creativity and taking things and seeing them differently than other people. My daughter, for example, can go on a nature walk, see a bird, and then go home and draw the bird. And I'm like, did you look like me? I have to have it on the computer to be able to try and get it. And she's <laughs> like, no, I just remember it in my memory from when we were on the um, walk. But ask her to remember letters on, a, you know, for spelling patterns and things like that, and it's very different. But she thinks holistically with the um, the 3D model in her brain of the bird and can do a beautiful rendition of the bird that we saw on our walk. And yeah. so it's just a different way of processing. Yeah, thank you. And many schools, I mean, you've talked about the decoding and coding and fluency. They may or may not ever use the word, dys, uh, word dyslexic. And that's right. where I think parents get confused because I'll see a lot of parents will come in, well, he's not reading maybe he's dyslexic. And I tell him, you know, we, we have that little talk like you just gave And I say, it's not going to change any of the recommendations I give you right? or the help that you get. Cause I'm sure. And, and tell me your, you know, your experience on this, many of these kids who are really bright, maybe twice exceptional, they're reading close to grade level. So they're not called mm -hmm. dyslexic because they're not low enough yet they act and they have many patterns like dyslexia and they struggle like a dyslexic, but because so they're so bright, they're often not recognized as dyslexic, which means right. they often don't get the help they need because they're not low enough in reading. Are, is that your experience as well? Yes, absolutely. It's that um, conundrum, I guess, of twice exceptionality. If a child is performing well and it's kind of a, hidden disability almost because they can compensate and overcome. And many of them have great tenacity and perseverance and they struggle with sometimes it's an orthographic presentation of dyslexia where it's only coming out in um, hiccups in how quickly they can get through things. Sometimes it's a processing concern on um, how much, how quickly they can encode if they're taking notes off of the board, for example, um, and encode onto their own paper. So sometimes just by having a 504 where they get accommodations of a copy of teacher notes so that they can see visually, they can relate it back to what they saw in class on the board with the teacher and they can take notes on the teacher's notes. So that would be one type of an accommodation of, for students. Basically, they would need to, we would need to have evidence that they have some type of a processing delay or um, processing concern related to encoding, related to um, a processing speed, how quickly they can get through things. So sometimes students can be identified through that pathway for a 504 where they just need accommodations in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Will you uh, explain a little bit more because our history of working together with kids is 
especially around visual processing and tracking problems that you find while you're doing your eval. You want to explain a little bit more about the processing difficulties, um, how that shows up for you or in the classroom. Sure. And, you know, it um, can be remediated often. Right. Many times um, cases that we send over for the visual processing um, are going to be things like they skip lines as they're like, let's say that they're doing um, letter or number identification. And so these are things that for sure they know. We've tested that they know these things, but they're skipping down to a line below or above. And so they're not tracking properly across the page. And so their fluency is impacted. Sometimes kids will self-correct, but it definitely impacts their um their fluency because they have to go back and they are looking at um, the the line below or the line above and they're not being able to process quickly across the page. Um, sometimes it can look like inattention because they're looking up or it's almost like a reset. They have to like kind of shake their head and like look back at the page and like keep going. Um, so it can, a lot of times it'll come out in fluency, their ability to track across a page. Right. And then, of course, some of them come out in written work uh, with poor eye-hand yes. coordination, uh, yes. getting their so work done quickly, handwriting, things yep. like that. Exactly. The letter formation, um, spacing on their words, between words, the, if words uh, lowercase and uppercase are all kind of the same size and uh, they're not fluent in in those types of things, they it's almost like they, again, have a hiccup. I remember recently testing a kiddo, and uh, when they were making some of the shapes, they weren't letters, but they were shapes. And it was almost like they had to pause in the middle to reset and then finish it out to self-correct their brain to be able to um, process the shape correctly. Right. And then we won't spend time today, but um, certainly there could be auditory processing problems. And on my podcast, we've had the Able Kids Foundation that work on auditory processing. So processing in general, how, you know, that's your job. Figure out how this kid's yeah. operating, processing and emotions. And then you've been just great because from what you've done, then you help point a a parent in a direction of where to get support, help, remediation, whatever, in usually more than one area. It's usually not a simple right. switch. Yeah, here, this takes care of your learning problem. Yeah, and I think that that's what parents are looking for is a direction of, we know that something's, my parent gut is telling me something isn't going right. And a lot of times when they come to us and we do some testing, it can be coexistent with other things. So yes, dyslexia, yes, it happens to show up in reading or dysgraphia, it shows up in writing. And there could be an element of that visual processing or auditory processing that's standing in their way as well and coexistent and getting help and sending them in the direction of those specialists such as you um, helps to remediate some of those Things and it, it gives a lot more answers of okay, so I I I have parents tell me all the time, okay, so I'm not crazy, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, right. No, not there's your parent gut. I always say, you know, follow that parent gut because a lot of times 
kids, especially our twice exceptionals, can um, compensate up to a point. That's why we get a lot of um, referrals at sixth or seventh grade when they're entering middle school or ninth grade when they're entering high school because they've reached a point where they can't compensate anymore. They've been able to be okay throughout elementary and or middle, but then trying to navigate through a higher workload, getting through more things as other kids are progressing, they've plateaued a year or two. And now they're like, I, I can't take in any, any more information. I've got to figure out what's going on. Yeah, that's great. Let's kind of back up. And if you could help parents, um, you know, parents are often floundering because kids that are struggling um, with learning, and it could be a disability, giftedness, uh, a racial inequity, it could be a number of things, but they don't even know where to start. And they may ask their right. teacher, and if the kiddo's, you know, a behavior kid or a t- has attention problems, the teacher may only see the behavior and not what's underneath mm-hmm. it. So, Give the parents some ideas of how how to get started in in figuring out what's going on with their kiddo. Yeah, uh, screenings are a great way to. Uh, one of the screens we use here is BASC, um, B-A-S-C. So that can help to determine is this is what you're seeing at home attentional related? Is it social emotional related? Getting to that core. Why is there the behavior? The behavior is there for a reason, um, but getting to the why behind the behavior, are they bored at school? Are they overwhelmed at school? Are they um, have anxiety around it because they have a negative um, loop in their mind about who they are as a learner? So screeners can be a great thing. Um, uh, In one of my uh, last, when I was in public ed, I was working with um, an affective needs that's going to be where there's a lot of behaviors. They're having a hard time um, being with peers in the classroom, and so they have a separate location, so an affective needs program where they can kind of go back and forth between the classroom and then this moderate to significant need room. Uh And it was interesting when I was working with the affective needs teacher, uh, we started to get some referrals from that group of students that hadn't had a cognitive done. So we, um, you know, started referring them over to the school psychologist to get some um, some cognitive testing. And what ended up coming up is uh, there were about five students, three of them were identified after that as twice exceptional, where we didn't realize because it was less common of a gifted ability that they had. They were the movers. They were the um, needing to build things. And so a, a regular classroom environment when I say regular, when I, I think of desks, you sit at your desk, um, you, you get from the teacher, you know, the t- teacher's giving an auditory lecture, that type of thing, isn't going to be most conducive for that child. And it was very interesting to see the shift over the next two years for that child, helping them to understand what, who they are as a learner, and then also the shift of staff working with that child to know that they had this gifted part of them and to see beyond the behavior that they're seeing, to ask questions of what might be triggering this behavior. And just having those conversations, I think, were really, really powerful to begin to um, change not only the child's perspective about themselves, but also staff in general um, and working with staff to understand this child's profile. 
Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, walk us through the steps. Let's say you have a kiddo, and all parents think their kids are smart, usually. <laughs> Yet they're struggling in school. They may or may not have behavior. They, they're not reading well. They won't do their homework. Where should they get started? I mean, do they start their teacher privately? And, and let's yeah, then move so into 504s and IEP potentials. I think the first step is going to be talking with the teacher um, at, you know, parent-teacher conferences or calling a separate meeting and just saying that here's some things that I'm noticing. Um, do you notice these things at school? Um, here are some of the concerns that we have. We've noticed that we've gotten a couple emails about my child not turning in work. Um, can you help me understand what we can do as parents and kind of starting in that, teaming with your child's teacher. If the if the response is, well, they just need to and fill in the blank, then yes, try those things. But then also sometimes it, it does require outside evaluation, especially if the child is not um, failing a classes at school. Sometimes it can be difficult to uh, get a referral for testing through the school system. Um, so you can go through uh, private, you can do a 504 if it's not. Um, so uh, if explain not, a 504 and what that would yeah, give them. So, yeah, so if they're not, let's say that they are just kind of right at the, maybe one year behind, but the turning in things are significant. A 504, the difference between the 504 and the IEP IEP is funded through IDEA, and so it funds the special education teaching program. And money is given to the school and the school district for specialized instruction through a special education teacher. A 504 goes through the Office of Civil Rights, and because it's funded differently, um, there are accommodations that the general classroom teacher can apply. So the difference is 504s are going to be accommodations within the general classroom, and IEP is going to be accommodations in the classroom, but then also it can be pulled out or pushed in, depending on the um, profile for the school, with a specialized educator in special education that's specifically trained to work with students with disabilities. Uh -huh. um, and so a 504 might be just what they need of some extended time that a teacher can give them. Um, checklists or uh, alternate or checking, let's say that they're in secondary, so middle school or high school, could be an academic counselor that they have a weekly check-in that helps them with the executive functioning techniques. Um, that type of service can be written into a 504 because it doesn't need to be a specialized instructor. It can be an academic counselor. Um, and just being able to help them maintain getting things turned in. And so the 504 is going to be accommodations that a general education teacher can help with. Right. And it's a tough road to navigate, especially if it's your first child. And, um, right. people, you know, many parents are intimidated and uh, there are support parents. Uh, there's lots of ways to get help. But, Melissa, I'm sorry to say we're almost out of time. Is there any last words of wisdom you'd like to share with our audience before, you know, we wrap it up in the next minute or so? Um, I think the biggest thing that I want to say is follow your parent gut and that thinking differently isn't a good or a bad thing. It's just it's different and that's okay. And learning to um, have compensation strategies, teach them how to interact with their world makes a huge difference for kids. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and they can contact you at Navigating Education. We have your information in our show notes. And uh, I just have to share, it's been a pleasure working with your families. Uh, it They come in well-educated, great questions, and together as a team, uh, we're just thrilled to be able to do what we can to really help help those kiddos um navigate their lives and, and improve their educational process. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks to the audience thank you, for listening, and we'll see you real soon. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.